We're back. Another episode of the Royal Urban Mobile Podcast. I'm Cliff. Chocolate Buddha in the house has been a little little bit since yes. we've been in the van, you know, the mobile man cave. Welcome, welcome Fine back. vintage 99 Chevy Astro van representing in this Tokyo town, Shibuya. It's nice to be back. And uh, yeah, I'm loving it, man. Yeah, last three episodes, uh, I did it alone without shock and yeah uh, without the mobile man cave but we are back yeah, in we the are streets back in the streets of, of Tokyo. Tokyo and our special guests today are two awesome brothers they're mm. actually brothers right and um we're going to Oh you guys them. are brothers blood yeah, brothers yeah, yes, oh get out of brothers. here all right all right so we're going to have them introduce themselves hello uh, my name is Sena von Kujovi I am Ghanaian Japanese, and this is Pele Von Kujovi. I'm often known as Senna's little brother. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I'm also Ghanaian Japanese and uh, moved to Tokyo five months ago. Wow. So both of you moved five five months ago. So I moved um, two and a half years ago. Okay. Mm. So we were. I was born in Japan, or we were both born in Japan, but our family moved to Ghana when we were very little. So I think I was around two, and we were raised in Ghana. And then we educated in different parts. And then after I graduated, I was like, I want to come to Japan. I want to learn more about my Japanese side. So I moved here two and a half years ago. And then I said, yo, Billy, got to come here, man. So he moved here about four months ago. What brought you over here, man? Did he tell you all about the nightlife and the ladies and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Asi- you know. <laughs> aside from, you know, finding out your Japanese side of your roots or what? Well, I mean, it's, uh, all kinds of stuff. You know, I, I didn't really want to be in America that was one thing. After I graduated, a lot of my friends applied for jobs there. But I was like, mm, I don't know if I really want to stay in America. And then I was looking at where I'm trying to go in life. And I'm trying to work <laughs> between Japan or Asia and Africa and be like a bridge to connect these two continents. And I figured maybe the U.S. or Europe doesn't really have anything to do with that. And I'd like to go to Ghana, but I feel it might be a little early right now. So I'm hoping to build some network here get some skills and stuff, and then over time, not even over time, but not too long from now, move back to Ghana. Yeah, so I was like, okay, might as well get started with it and came to Japan. It's your Global Japan fam, Daisha, and you are listening to the Raw Urban Mobile Podcast from my favorite corner in the world, Shibuya, Tokyo, Japan. Nice. So we have Pele and Sena. Sena. Okay. So you guys grew up in Ghana. Okay. Um, where where at in Ghana specifically? In Accra. In Accra. Yeah. So okay. I was there from nine months old to sixteen years old. All right. In, in Accra. How same. About you? Same. Nine so if it's nine, then for me I was one and a half or two years old, and then until sixteen. Um, in Ghana, Accra, which is the capital, but our father is from the east part of Ghana, from a place called the Volta region. But he um, was living in Japan. Our father, he is a voodoo priest as well as a professional stage magician. So really? that's what he was doing in Japan. So he was living in Japan, and before that, he was in Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, India. He was in India for 10 years as a Hindu Tantra yogi. Right? Wow. So he had a wow. very long journey traveling Asia until discovering that the spiritual roots that he was, the spirituality that he was always looking for was always in Africa, which is when he went full voodoo mode. It's like, I want to be somebody who preserves. And that's one of the reasons why he decided to 
bring us back to the continent. Um, but another reason why we were raised in Ghana was just the discrimination, you know, like our grandparents, our Japanese grandparents were very against our parents' marriage. They're like gaijin, not only just gaijin, but a black man. It's like, what? We can't accept this. Um, but my parents are very stubborn. Um, so they decided to get married and then we were born. And my father always said, he said, you know, if these kids are raised in Japan, it will be very difficult for them to understand their African roots and be proud of their black identity. And to do so, we need to raise them in Africa. And my mother agreed. So my mother has been living now in Ghana for over 23 years, my Japanese mother. Wow. She's currently in Ghana. And she speaks the Ghanaian so she doesn't speak the Ghanaian local language, but she speaks English very well, and she understands Ghanaians very well. I, I don't know any Ghanaian person who is better than my mother at, like, bargaining for prices. Like, she would bargain <laughs> harder than that a Ghanaian. is so un-Japanese. <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't haggle for nothing over exactly. here. If they see the price is 50 yen, it's 50 yen. I was like, maybe we could get it for 35, 50 <laughs> It's the right thing to do. That's awesome, though. Yeah. How about cooking? Does mama cook? Yes, she Cross-cultural? does. Cross-cultural? Yes, she does, actually. So since I moved to Japan, I'd been living, or she just left back to Ghana last week. But then me and her were staying in my <clears throat> my place together. And I think for the first five months of being in Japan, I ate like way more Ghanaian food than I have Japanese food completely. My mom made Jap- Ghanaian food like almost every other day. And so I was only eating, because I don't eat out much. I only eat at home. So my mom made Ghanaian food like every single day. And now she the just, fridge is dry. <laughs> she brings the ingredients <clears throat> yeah, over? We, yeah, we brought some ingredients from Ghana. And there's different places where we can buy food, like Shin Okubo and stuff like that. And she made a lot of Ghanaian food this summer for me. So I'm grateful for that. That's <laughs> oh, dope. wow. Yeah. That's dope. So what what is her relationship like with her parents and family? You know, being in Ghana all these years, uh, have mm. they like? Do they still stay in contact? Do they still talk to her? Or so actually, my mom's parents have both passed now. Okay. But then, um, I think just around when Senna was born, apparently, this guy was pretty cute, and so <laughs> I think there was, <laughs> there's this video of my, and I'm talking about how my grandparents' idea of my mom marrying a black person, having black children, changed. So before we were born, I think there was a time where my grandma said something like, how can we take them to dinner, right? They're going to be public. Like, you know? yeah, how can we take them out? But then after Senna was born, and I guess like she had like a, a different epiphany or something, and she was like, wow, these guys are like really great. And so our grandmother really loved it. She showed us so much love. And she's one of the reasons why we were able to get like I think so much exposure to Japanese culture. My grandma would send toys from Japan. She'd she'd record Japanese TV shows on cassettes and send them out. So we we're able to watch Japanese children's shows in Ghana. And that's one of the re- that was like our foundation for, you know, being I guess Japanese as well. But yeah, her her relationship with her parents got like it was better. I mean, obviously it was a little sad that her parents were aging and she was so far away. And so every summer when we got the chance, we'd come to Japan and like forever, she'd take every last day of holiday to come here and expose us to our grandparents. And one of the reasons she taught us Japanese was so we could be closer and speak to our grandparents. Yeah. 
And by the time my, my grandparents died, they had a completely different uh, perception or idea about race. You know, my grandma on her deathbed said, you know, it's not about the skin color of the person, it's the person's heart, right? So those things doesn't matter. So whereas before I was born, she was very against it. It's like, we can't do this. And then after, it just completely changed. And she would carry me around town and everybody would come to <laughs> her because I was a cute half child or a double child. And she loved it. And, and she even came to Ghana two times, actually. Oh, wow. You know, that that's awesome because it was like you guys bridged that relationship, especially when you were born. Because, you know, I went through the same thing, you know, my wife's parents. And then as soon as our daughter was born, it was like, oh, can't do without her and this, that and the other. But, yeah, that you know, that did you guys face any discrimination when you were here in Japan, like from peers or people your age group, you know, outside of, you know, what you went through earlier what your yeah, parents um, went through earlier. Yeah, I would say a little bit, not too much. So there was a time in our life when our mother got sick. So we had to move to Japan for about six months. Um, and we went to normal Japanese school, right? So we were the only gaijins out there. Um, and a lot of people will come and say, hey, gaijin, gaijin, or kokujin, kokujin. Um, but... I guess we were, by that, already that time, we were raised in Ghana and we were raised in Africa, very proud of our Ghanaian culture. So we weren't necessarily feeling bad being called African at all because <laughs> exactly. we were very proud of being African. Um, so, but I guess that was an attempt by some of our peers to try and differentiate us from the group. Um, but if we weren't raised in Ghana, maybe we would have reacted very differently and that would have been more emotionally challenging for us. So we had a lot, of, a few things like that, but nothing major. Um, but I do have a lot of friends who are Ghanaian Japanese who um, experienced that kind of discrimination in school and were very scarred um, about that um, for the rest of their lives. And, 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 that's, and that's what they're missing. They're missing that... Uh that education, that pride, yeah. that African pride. They don't yeah. have that when they grow up here because, I don't know, most likely, you know, sometimes they don't, they're without their father or their, their African side. Very so, difficult to do in Japan because yes. I think that the media, um, not only in Japan but everywhere, the media and the images you see of Africa is basically poverty, disease, um, backwardness. So if that's all you see in the media and you don't have any other source of information about the continent, it's very difficult to have a positive image of the continent. That's not only for mixed race children like me, that's even for diasporan Africans who are in Americas or anybody for that matter. It's very uh, important to have authentic, um, unbiased stories that show um, multiple narratives of the continent, not that single story of negativity that is always often perpetuated in the media. Yes. All right, now let's be honest here. You're on the Raw Urban Mobile podcast. When them kids was talking that shit to you, you didn't like, hey, man, look, you want to take this shit outside? <laughs> some of this Afri African ass whooping on you. <laughs> so no fights or nothing in school? No fights. Oh, man. I, I got close. I got close. I had, I no, had but there a, were some times where you had to, like, you know, it's not like a full-on fight because they won't really full-on fight you. Mm, you know, because yeah. they know what's good, you know, because yeah. we're athletic, we're this and that. Thanks you know? to that white-owned media that show people <laughs> if you fuck with a black man, you're going to get them hands, dog. Yeah. But, but yeah, 
Oh, so it was never a full-on yeah, fight. Yeah, it wasn't a full-on fight, but I remember there were times where I had to, you know, shake up a dude yeah, a little bit. Granted, we're also aggression. about, like, you know, five years old, six years old. Yeah, <laughs> you the put time. your hands on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but you brought up a great point about the uh, media, the narrative and everything. And I think that, you, you know, I watch media in the States, and now I'm gearing... I'm, I'm I'm being attracted to the um, the small independent medias mm. because mm. in reality the media in America is owned by white people. Mm-hmm. So the narrative that they create, they're not going to create a a, a a negative narrative about themselves. Mm. So thanks to independent media, the smaller media groups, they were showing us um, the positive sides of Africa, how Africa contributed to the world mm. without you know without africa the world wouldn't be nothing mm-hmm. you know with you know of course they took the resources and rape but we won't get in all of that but you know the the technology and all this that and the other and and, and uh things like that mm-hmm. so growing up in ghana how was it for you guys i just, love just talk about I, I, I love growing up in ghana i mean in ghana as well we are not considered Ghanaian, full Ghanaian, right so the same that's where way, i was going so the yeah. same way i'm con- i'm considered gaijin here in ghana i'm considered gaijin but i'm considered a white boy so they'll really? call me white Obroni, and many people from the diaspora come to ghana and get surprised by that because conceptions of race in africa not necessarily the same in america right they look at your skin tone and most Ghanaians are much darker than I am, yes. right? So when they look at me initially, I'm seen as a foreigner, even though I have black blood or Ghanaian blood. And it's the same for even diasporan Americans who come, African Americans who come to Ghana who are a little bit light skinned, they get called white man and they, they, wow. they, it makes oh. them go crazy, right? But there wasn't, there wasn't discrimination as a result of that. So, I mean, at the beginning, somebody would look at you as separate. But as they got to know you, then you became a brother, you became family, so you became the same. So then it was, I felt very, very welcomed and accepted in Ghanaian society. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Wow, that's an interesting um, take on, you said, color, race. Yes. But I will say my experience in Japan of all the African brothers I've met, 100%, and I'm saying this from the heart, never a bad experience, always love. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And, and even some of my friends say, well, look how big you are. They ain't go. I'm like, no, nah, man, you just need to change your attitude, bro. You know, they, I mean, every African brother. I mean, even, you know, you, hey, let me ask you something. Is it the same in Ghana? Like, you know, when black people see each other, especially in foreign countries, we give give each other that backward nod. Yeah. It's like, what's up, bro? we don't even know each other. Yeah. Is, it, is it the yeah. same in Ghana? Yeah, well, in, in Ghana, we don't, at least I didn't do it. But then I think... That nod, well, at least because in Ghana, almost everyone's black, right? That's good. So point, then yeah. there's not that like acknowledgement of being because everyone is. But then when you're when I'm outside of Ghana and I see anywhere like in the train station, just walking around in Japan, anywhere where there's few black people, then you know if the person is older, I, I you know I nod down. If the person is almost my age, I nod up. You know, like yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. there's always that, and I really like that. You know, but we have oh, that special up. nod because yeah, yeah. we know. We know that... Uh, we know we outnumbered. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to see us here, you know, walking around, like, all right, my brother, what's yeah, going on? Yeah. I really like that, actually. My friend at work 
has been uh, we've been chilling a bunch and like every time I see a black person he gives it's like wow you guys really do that all the time you know and <laughs> but everyone yeah. does that so that's really cool yeah only black people understand that you know it's like hey man you know, I, I see a fellow Londoner overseas I don't you know we have our reasons it's it's ingrained in us it's like yeah yeah, yeah. so you said you lived in Ghana until 16 yes okay and then where did you go after that so I took almost the same trajectory as him <laughs> pretty much but um, at 16, Senna and I both went to uh, high school in Costa Rica. Costa Rica? Yeah. Whoa. school called United World College. They have about 16 or 17 around the world. And it's this um, very international student group that's kind of centered around peace and understanding of diversity and tolerance kind of thing. So we went there for two years. It's the IB program. And then after that, we went to Vermont in a school called Middlebury in Vermont. It's a little small liberal arts school very what cold. was it like in vermont for black people vermont didn't have a lot of black people vermont i mean it's cold vermont is extremely cold like i was i became depressed in my first winter because i i mean i was coming from ghana and then i went to costa rica then i went to vermont and it goes down to minus 35 minus 40 Whoa, wow. and yeah. like how does somebody who's never really experienced serious winter understand the difference between like minus 5 and minus 20 <laughs> and minus 30 and how you dress differently for that <laughs> so i got depressed but it was good. I think it made me resilient. Now I'm very confident I can go anywhere. You can send me to a desert. You can send me to Antarctica. Like, I'll, I'll survive. I mean, you're uh, wearing sandals today. Yeah, right yeah, now. I'm wearing sandals. Japan. So I'm like, Japanese winter, you know, it's, it's, it's very mild. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Part of your depression was you. You couldn't wear your flashy colors in your sandals. <laughs> we call that, you know, us country. You know, us, us southern country boys. We just say, "Hey, man, that's white folks cold," and so that lets you know it's like very cold. So back to Costa Rica. Um, was that the particular reason why you moved to Costa Rica to go to that school? So yes, to go to that school. So the school um, has kind of uh, selection committees across the world. So we went through the selection process in Ghana. So we were selected as students going to represent Ghana at this school. So every country sends their students as representatives. So in my year, we had five students. One went to Hong Kong, one went to uh, Norway, one went to the US, and then I was sent to Costa Rica, right? So in Costa Rica, I was studying with students from 79 countries, even though we're just 150. So very small, but extremely diverse, representing Ghana. Um, but that's also where I got you know, very aware of my unique background as a Ghanaian Japanese and even my background coming from a voodoo family, right? And how unique that perspective was, right? Before that, I was a little... Um, hesitant of sharing that because I've re I experienced a lot of discrimination just from my spiritual practice in Ghana. Yes. And so when I went to Costa Rica and I realized that a lot of people appreciate this, right? So I should be more outspoken and share my story. Um, so that, that was a very um, transformative period in my life, that two years in Costa Rica. And we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, voodoo a little later, but uh, how, how's the, the food, the weather? <laughs> Costa Rican food. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think Costa Rica is really known for their food. <laughs> they have like the weather is fantastic, beautiful, like beaches and forests, really nice people, good food too. I guess. Um, yeah, it was very great 
And like, I really wanted to learn Spanish. That was one of my main reasons for going there. First, I wanted to leave home. I was 16 <laughs> and I was like, I need something else. Yeah. <laughs> and so I needed a new kick and I wanted to go there. But I really wanted to learn Spanish. And that was kind of one of my main, yeah. And then, so from Costa Rica to Vermont. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And Vermont, why? So the the school that we went to, they um, they have a scholarship fund mm-hmm. where if you did graduate from this school, that you get to get a scholarship to study in the United States, right? And this was something that uh, our mother also studied in the U.S., and so she always wanted us to study in the U.S. She right? studied so in Vermont. She also oh, really? studied in Vermont. <laughs> actually. Yeah, that's funny, yeah. She always told us not to go there. I mean, she always told us that it's very, very cold, so we're like, we're never going to go there. Yeah, yeah, we ended yeah. up both going to college. Yeah, but, but we got a scholarship to study there. Okay. Um, and we had many friends who were also going there because our school is kind of like a feeder. So they send a lot of them to Vermont. So it was like, okay, why not? Vermont, we went to school called Middlebury College, tiny school, 2,500 students. Um, and yeah, we went there. And it was, it was a good experience, I think, Great. intellectually. It was very, very challenging, but also very transformative. Um, and we met many great people. And that's where I, we first started this uh, revolution um, project yes. which is uh, a virtual platform that aims to demystify and destigmatize West African spiritual and herbal practices. Yes. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Of course. We're um, segueing right but in. I, I, just, I am so interested. Yeah, I just wanted to get through a few more things with you guys. So, all right. So after Vermont, what happens next? Vermont, then I... So I, the reason why I came to Japan, it was very, very uh, oh, so Japan was random. Next. So okay. Japan was next, right? Okay. So I, I went to Vermont, and then I was graduating, thinking of what to do. I looked back at my life, and I realized that education was really a catalyst, and it really transformed me, right? So I went to Costa Rica, I went to Vermont, and my even my Japanese education in Ghana. We studied Japanese in Ghana at, in Saturday school, every Saturday. Hated it. But now we're very grateful. Uh, money, 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 money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the Japanese government supports this, right? So the Japanese government sends these uh, books and all the materials that are used in Japan all around the world for um, Japanese kids who are living outside of Japan so that when they do come back to Japan, they, they don't struggle too much adapting. Right? Okay, so it's not really for people like me or Pele where, where, where we are not planning to come to Japan because before I hated Japan. Well, you never really know <laughs> right? that, right? Yeah. I mean, but the original idea is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't never wanted to come to Japan, mm-hmm. but when I look back at my life and I saw education was that, you know, catalyst, I wanted to also work in education and I found an organization in Japan, which is where I currently work, called Ashinaga. And Ashinaga has this initiative called the Ashinaga Africa Initiative, where we are providing um, scholarships to brilliant but often students in 49 sub-Saharan African countries. And we provide them with scholarships to study abroad, um, but ultimately the vision is to have them go back to the continent of Africa to help and contribute to the development. Right? Yes. So we're nurturing leaders who will be for Africa. And I felt that I, as a Ghanaian Japanese, I'm very, very interested in doing this. And so I first came to Japan on an internship for three months and the plan was to do three months in Japan and then I was going to go back to the US I was going to live in Washington DC do management consulting Um, I already had an apartment 
paid with my friends and I came here for three months and I was like, nah, it's like there's so much more that I can do here. and leverage as a Ghanaian Japanese working for Africa and Asia here than if I was in the US where some of these pipelines are already built. Right? Yes. So there are already people doing that, whereas in Japan, it's much newer. Right? Yeah. So I quit that. I was like, I'll move here. So that's how I came here and I've been very happy since. All right. And then you also, you're also the co-founder of Jaspora. Jaspora. Yeah. Yes. So tell us what Jaspora is. So Jaspora stands for um, African Diaspora in Japan. All right. And it's a platform that aims to um, network, um, connect and share information among the African diaspora and its allies so that we could potentially accelerate um, diasporan contributions to the development of Africa or changing the narrative of Africa. Um, so we host monthly events at Edge Off in Shibuya, very close to here actually. Yes. Um, and we had our last event in, uh, on Thursday this week. We had close to 100 guests. We had many African um, diplomats. We had business makers, businessmen. We had entrepreneurs, um, both from the continent, from Japan, and even from the diaspora. And they were basically networking. And we were just connecting people who would otherwise maybe not meet because there are not that many spaces in Japan or in Tokyo where you could just connect and have an Africa-centric organization organizing. Most of the time, it's the Japanese government or some other organization organizing for you. But I think that Africans should be doing things that they can do for themselves, right? So we would organize and then we would allow other people to come and join. But that allows us to control the narrative that we put out there and exactly. not have this narrative imposed on us. Yes. And that's how I met these, these gentlemen at J Jaspora. Yeah, I met them at an event. And I actually went. To meet you guys. Oh, thank right. you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know uh, Uli. Right. Yes. She's also the, she's oh. the co-founder. Oh, she's the so, other co-founder. Yes. yes. So shout out us. to Uli. Shout out to Uli. Uli is great. Uli is actually the one who came up with the idea. Oh. Right. So I work with Uli. Uli sits like just two tables away from me. And she had this idea which she's been thinking about. Um, and she said she had the idea, but she was thinking of who she should do it with. And so when she was like, let's do it, she was like, would you guys like to be co-founders? I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. And that's how it started. So kudos to Uli for being the brains, the brains behind the this. And she was the inspiration that got us started. And now we are like on full throttle trying to develop it. We're just four months old now, but yes. we're, we're pushing on. Yeah, it was a great event. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, behind every strong black man is a strong black woman. <laughs> yeah. Were you, um, <clears throat> so of course this event is, is Afrocentric, um, I was a bit surprised. Not, I wouldn't say surprised, but I was just like, it, it's it's nice to see non-Africans um, also attend the event, right? Were these people that you already connected with or like some of, a lot of those people that you just meet that day? Or? I think in Jaspora these days, um, these days is our fourth time doing it, but we do, it's really interesting because we get people who just see our event on Facebook. A lot, I think at least maybe at least a half to two-thirds of the room I don't know a lot of times and I'm just meeting people for the first time as well people just find the event on Facebook but this current event we had like a good mix I think I don't know what the proportions would be but there was a good amount of like foreigners there was a bunch of Japanese people who were interested and there was a lot of Africans from different places some people from the diaspora as well so it was a very nice mix and we like to see more of the mix you know we don't we don't want it to be just like a 
pure exclusive African thing where only African voices only should be heard. I think you have to collaborate across the board. And it's nice to like have an Africa-centric core, but then we definitely want to have a lot of voices around. And so that's kind yeah. of cool. And, and I think that allows us to, sh- you know, really change the narrative, not only within ourselves, because there is a lot of stereotypes and information sharing that needs to happen among Africans but then if it just stays there then there's no point right so it has to you know we need to know what we want to say but also share that with the world so that we are representing ourselves in the way that we see as dignifying and that requires us to have whether that's Japanese people or whether that's white people or Indian people or anybody who is interested and willing to listen you know, we, we always have our doors open for such people so that we can also, you know, challenge some of these narratives and, and, and educate people about the realities. Cool. All right. Um, I think I'll cut the first half of the discussion off right now, um, and we're going to move into part two. I'm going, we're going to split this conversation into two episodes. So um, this will be part one, and then now we're moving on to part two. Thank you for listening to the Roar Urban Mobile Podcast. For more episodes, please visit rump.podbeam.com or you can head straight to Google and type in Raw Urban Mobile Podcast. You can also listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you can stream or download podcasts.